Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts paper ghosts is a production of iHeartRadio. September 1st, 1992 began like any other day for Lonnie DeMott. I worked for a company in Eagle Rock, Missouri at the time, and I was going to Joplin to do service calls. Lonnie was a former truck driver turned repairman who fixed wood stoves, pellet stoves, and hot tubs. He says he was on his way to his first job of the day, about 500 miles west of where Tammy Zawicki went missing, nine days earlier. It was a Tuesday, around 9 a.m. Lonnie was driving his boss's pickup truck along Interstate 44 when it started to rain. 
So uh, they started sprinkling. I pulled off an exit ramp and got out and got my tools and set them in the front of the truck, and I could smell something real rude. I mean, it was funky. It, and it uh, was I shut the truck door, when I turned to walk around the front of the truck, I seen it laying there. Roughly 12 feet from where Lonnie stood was a shocking sight. A bulky red blanket rolled up like a big cigar, duct-taped, on both ends. You could tell it was by the way it was laying there. With this funk and everything, I figured it was either that or somebody had an old dead cow or calf and they just wrapped it up and threw it off alongside the road so they didn't have to dispose of it. Lonnie knew something was off. What he didn't know was what to do next. I went ahead and got in the truck and started down the road and I kept thinking, you know, I really ought to call the highway patrol and turn it in. And then I would think, no, I'm not going to call the highway patrol and turn it in because it's not my business. What Lonnie DeMott chose to do next would leave him with a cloud of suspicion that lingers to this very day, 30 years later. Previously on Paper Ghosts, People started buying phones. Guys in the task force were running out buying phones. They saw, whoa, it's going to happen to my wife, got my daughter. I took a phone call in the kitchen, and he said, Jen, don't say anything. I just want you to listen. They found a body in Missouri. Tammy is a very young girl uh, on her way to college. Who would she willingly go with on a sunny afternoon in the summer when her car broke down? Now we have a crime scene. Now we have a place to start looking. Before, we had nothing. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. This is Season 3 of Paper Ghosts, In Plain Sight. Trucks. Yeah. 30, 30 years ago, there wasn't near this many cars out here. You can stand along this highway for 30 minutes sometimes and not see anything. Just trucks. Just just trucks. I first met Lonnie DeMott during a trip I took to Missouri last year. He's a good-natured, heavyset guy with cropped hair, a long, square-shaped goatee, and a somber-looking, slow-moving dog that tags along wherever he goes. We met along Interstate 44 at the exact location where he found Tammy Zawicki's body in 1992. Describe to me what happened. And uh, I was going to Joplin, and I had my boss's truck. And it, uh, he was, uh, at the time, he was a deputy sheriff and the fire chief. So he had a uh, radio in his truck. And when I pulled off the ramp, it started raining, and I come across the, the crossroad, just about where that guardrail starts up there, and it, uh, there was a body laying off in the ditch. I got out to put my tools in the front of the truck because it was raining. So you stop up at the guardrail? Yeah, well, almost to the guard, not quite to the guardrail. Like before it or after? This, this side of it. And I walk around the truck and get my tools out of the back. And then I went the right door and opened the door and was setting them in the floorboard because I carried two trays. I should note. There are people who don't believe Lonnie's account of what happened. 
that he's given varying accounts as to why he pulled over in the first place and that the decisions he made after finding Tammy's body seem suspicious. And there's another report of, you said you stopped to take a piss, did you? No. Oh, you never said that? No, I stopped to get my tools out of the back of the truck. I don't know where that came from. Well, I sort of figured, you know, just like you, you're gonna to try to, to make a, a sort of a report out of this. And there's things that get bobbled around. But this is your voice, this is your story, not mine. You're telling your story to me, and I'm gonna tell it for you. And I wanna get it right. So you pull off that ramp, you're heading west. Okay, so you pull over, you get out. And I walk around the truck. I smell something funky, but you know, alongside the road, you don't don't really know. So did, describe the odor to me. And if you've ever found a dead body, it's it's undescribable. You know, I mean, it's a smell that just automatically turns your stomach. I looked out there and seen it laying there, and I thought, where? And then on the side of the road right here. Up here? Yeah. So it was up here, how far off the road? It, uh, she was probably about as far as from here to that piece of plastic right there. 10, 12 feet. Yeah. And Lonnie said he saw what appeared to be a body wrapped in a red blanket with silver duct tape sealing both ends. He could tell it was a body just by the way it was laying, which is why Knowing what he did immediately after seeing the blanket seemed so strange. Lonnie hopped back into his truck and drove away. I thought, well, it's not my problem. At the time, I didn't have a driver's license. Ah. And then I thought, I'm just going to go on down the road and mind my own business. And going down the highway between here and the next exit, I tucked myself in and out of calling the police about 100 times. And the last thought I had was, if it was my daughter, I'd want to know. I shared this last detail with a source, someone close to the Zwicky case with access to the autopsy and crime scene reports. And they found his comments troubling. Why would Lonnie DeMott say daughter if he didn't know the gender or age of the person in the blanket? It's small details like these that can be so easily twisted into a conspiracy theory and make someone like Lonnie an easy target. But what Lonnie said didn't strike me as strange. It was apparent he was recalling what happened from a contemporary mindset. In other words, he already knew who the victim was as he retold his story. Minor discrepancies in anyone's recollections are understandable. 30 years is a long time. The truth is inherent, sure, but time can affect memory. Besides, Lonnie did end up calling the police. So I pulled off and called the state highway patrol and they said, would you meet us there? And I said, yes. And they said, what are you driving? And I said, a white three quarter ton Chevy pickup. So take me back. I mean, so you have, you have all these cops here. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, I'm gonna go to jail, because I don't have a license. They asked me to see my ID and I give it to them, which it was expired, or wasn't expired, it was revoked, but it didn't say that. And they uh, they just wrote my name down and stuff. And when we, after the coroner got there and we'd picked her up and put her in the deal. Are the cops there when the coroner comes? Yes, yes. Okay, so the coroner comes 
and you say we picked her up. You helped? Yes, yes, Ada. How, how did that happen? The state trooper that was there, he got out and got a pair of gloves and he walked down there and looked at it and sort of walked around it and he'd come back to get his pocket knife out of the car and he said, hope you know you made my day. And I said, well, if you got another pair of gloves, I'll help you. Because at that time I was part of the fire department where I live at and it, uh, there was just massively covered with bugs. You can't imagine how many bugs were on this. We cut the blanket and once we cut the blanket, we had to cut a lot more because she was wrapped in a sheet. We had to get down in there with all them bugs. And What did you see when, they, when you cut that blanket open? We seen that it was a body. You could tell it was a body. Could you see the face? No, no, we didn't, didn't open the end of it. And it, uh, we seen a femur in her leg and it- uh, It was exposed? Yeah, it, it was rotted enough that it was fallen. And he said, that's all I need to see. And at that time, we didn't even know it was a girl. Ah. And at that time, we had two girls and a lady in Springfield that went missing. Right, the Springfield three. Three. I thought that may have been one of them. Ah. Oh. Lonnie said he helped carry Tammy's body up the embankment and placed it next to a body bag that was along the side of the road. This may sound odd to many, and multiple law enforcement sources, including one from Missouri, told me this would not have happened, that the person who found a body would never be asked to help move it. And under modern day police policy, they're absolutely right. Today, Tammy's body would have remained in that gulch for hours so the entire crime scene could be processed for evidence. But cold cases need to be looked at within the context of the time and place. This was in 1992 in rural Missouri. The Lawrence County Sheriff's Office, which initially took the call, only had about 12 officers on staff at the time, and some of them worked part-time. Brad DeLay is the current Lawrence County Sheriff. I'm not saying that the body wasn't moved, but that is probably an unlikely thing unless they were to the point uh, for two reasons. One, being that uh, all the evidence that they needed collected was collected and the coroner was on scene and was able to or was ready to remove the body or there was some type of extended circumstance uh, that would have necessitated the body being moved immediately uh, and something like that would have been, you know, all of a sudden there was going to be this downpour that was going to cause flooding that may have damaged the body or the crime scene or something. As the person who found Tammy's body, Lonnie DeMott was, by mere happenstance, the first suspect. They said, before they got down with me, he said, I got one more question for you. And I said, what's that? And he said, I know this is going to sound like a stupid question. Do you know how the body got there? I said, no, sir. But I said, I can tell you one thing. I used to drive a truck. And from what I see, most truck drivers have a sheet in their bed. Most truck drivers have a blanket in their bed. And almost all truck drivers have duct tape. And if you reach up in the sleep, open the door on the sleeper and reach up and grabbed her and pulled her out, that's about where she'd lit. Why do you say that? Well, I drove a truck for years, and you know, if you got a hold of her and drug her out of the sleeper, that's about where she'd lit was where she was at. And right here, there's nothing around. Yeah. And you know, we look to we look to the north of where her body was, and we see nothing but acres of farmland. Yep. Not even a farmhouse. 
Yeah. You see nothing. Nothing. You look west. Nothing. You see nothing. You look south. You see that old truck stop. But you say that old truck stop is really small. Yeah, it was small. It, 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 it mainly it was a fuel stop. Truckers would often pull off here to, to do the logbook. All the time, truckers pull off exit ramps to do the logbook, especially when they know that there's a scale at Joplin and they're real known to be real stickier about your logbook. So that would answer the question of why a truck was parked there. So if the cop is driving by, there's no way he'd stop for oh, that truck. Oh, no, absolutely. They wouldn't bother you. I've slept on this ramp before. Used to be in Missouri, or, well, the whole country. You could pull off on an exit ramp and go to sleep. And no one bothers you. No one bothers you. Now it's What's most troubling to me is what Lonnie said happened after the body was recovered. Do they call you in for a report or you go down there? No, they never, never ever talked to me at all outside of the scene. I think shortly after they'd figured out that she was here and she was from up north and out east. I don't believe that once they run all their leads they had, I believe that's done with it. I, I believe it's set for 30 years or close to it. With the exception of a brief informal call later that day in 1992, Lonnie claims that no one, not Lawrence County, not Missouri State Highway Patrol, not the Illinois State Police, no one contacted him for a formal interview after he found Tammy Zawicki's body. Lonnie told me he had no idea the body was part of a multi-state investigation. He had no clue that it was a young woman who'd been abducted 500 miles away or that her case would go on to become a national news story. After he drove away from the scene that day, Lonnie said that nobody from law enforcement ever spoke to him again until 28 years later in 2020. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Almost everyone involved in the discovery of Tammy Zawicki's body had no idea that the young woman they'd found in Missouri was a missing college student whose case had started to attract national attention. How could they? Tammy's disappearance was being handled by a different law enforcement agency in Illinois. This event took place in District 17, which is our neighboring district. And my boss, my captain, called me into the office and said, "Um, you're going over to 17, a girl disappeared on the interstate, and you're going to help the PIO over there run the media and all that good stuff. Jeff Hanford was a public information officer, or PIO, with the Illinois State Police at the time. At District 17, he worked alongside another PIO, Jerry Myers. Jerry and I were sitting there, and the phone rang. And, you know, I mean, we had been fielding media calls. And it was a media outlet, I believe, in Missouri. And they said, hey, uh, you know, this is so-and-so from Channel Such-and-Such. And we're trying to verify that the body that was found here was Tammy Zwicky. And I said, what body? And they said, well, we found a body rolled in a carpet, and the clothing matches. Tammy was found wearing a blue T-shirt from her high school soccer team, along with sweatshorts adorned with soccer patches from various leagues she played in. So I went over and knocked on the door, and the vest, one of the vests here came. I said, they found a body in Missouri, and the clothing matches Tammy's wiki. You need to talk to the guy. 
So, you know, they basically, I think they talked to him briefly, and then they called the sheriff. The clothes Tammy was found wearing were her own, but it was later discovered that the items she had on were not the same ones she was wearing when she said goodbye to her brother hours earlier. According to her brother, Tammy was wearing a white T-shirt and dark shorts. Here's Jeff Padilla, a retired lieutenant from the Illinois State Police. She was wearing a pair of um, shorts from a soccer club that she played for. But was, what was very important to us was that the patch from that uh, soccer club was cut off the leg of those shorts. Notably, one circular white patch with red stitching that read St. Giles Soccer Club had been torn off the shorts Tammy was wearing. Why would her killer cut off that patch? We thought it possibly that it was a souvenir. According to Padilla, Tammy's killer took the patch as a trophy. It's an interesting idea, since serial killers can sometimes be prone to exhibit that kind of behavior. And in theory, there is no other reason beyond maybe the killer wanting to remove evidence from the scene if some of their own DNA got on the patch. As for the change of clothes, it's possible Tammy changed when she picked up lunch at Hardy's, or later after her car broke down on the side of a hot highway. She had bags of clothes packed in the car. Still, what is the likelihood she needed to switch out of everything she was wearing? Authorities kept a number of details surrounding Tammy's death private, but Lawrence County Coroner Don Lakin spoke to a reporter shortly after the body was found and revealed this. She was stabbed seven times in the chest and one time in the right arm. Two of those stab wounds punctured her lung and one punctured her liver. In an interview with another reporter, Lakin noted that Tammy's body didn't appear to have any blood. Quote, just some body fluids on the sheet and blanket from the decomposition, end quote. Law enforcement never publicly released the official cause of death. What we do know is that Tammy died from those stab wounds, which were caused by a short blade, like a Swiss Army or pocket knife. Here's Marty McCarthy, one of the members from the ISP task force. What was unusual was a pin knife, no more than that, seven times around the heart, and one is on scrapes to the side of the, of the arm. So she had to be unconscious when that. No one's going to sit there and take that kind of... Some, including Marty, have speculated over the years that there was a pattern to Tammy's wounds, one that circles her heart. Those with direct knowledge of the autopsy report, however, have told me there was never any indication of this. From what I have learned so far, I can speculate confidently that Tammy's killer was likely positioned on top of her, straddling her body, stabbing in a frenzied outburst, that this was not some sort of ritualistic, methodical placement of wounds. It's just the strangest murder I ever saw. Why would someone stab somebody seven times around the heart? Is that saying something? It would indicate to me that he wasn't necessarily going to kill her, that he, I better get rid of her. And all I got is this little pen knife. And there's no preparation for it. I'm not going to slit her throat. I can't do that. I don't, I, this is just my speculation. I've never seen a murder like this, ever. It's hard for me to understand how that happened. 
Other than the fact, it seems to me she has to have been unconscious. Has to have been. I, I don't think you could bind someone. And there, there would be marks on her wrist. If there she... weren't any, so far as I know. They could have, yeah, as far as I know. And no contusions on the head? As far as I know, no. It took some time. Where in the hell is she? What's she doing? What's, you know, it's just strange as hell. And where's the blood? Where's the, you know, these are questions I have. I don't know the answer. While I was in Missouri, I was able to track down one of the first officers on the scene. There's been plenty of misinformation spread over the course of 30 years regarding that day. So I was eager for this source to help clear up any doubt about Lonnie DeMott's story and what the crime scene itself can clarify. Unfortunately, my source just wasn't comfortable being on the podcast. What I can say about our conversation is this. The source told me that the first cop on the scene wasn't a big guy. So it made sense to him that Lonnie would have been asked to help carry Tammy's body up the embankment. Why was there a rush to get her out of the gulch and not wait for backup? It's tough to say. As Sheriff DeLay mentioned earlier, weather concerns could have been a factor. After all, Lonnie does maintain that he pulled over to cover his tools when it began to rain. Plus, there were two agencies at play, Lawrence County and the Highway Patrol. In my opinion, however, it boils down to inexperience with major crime scenes. Here's Jeff Padilla. Yeah, it's a bad idea. <laughs> it's, it's a bad idea. I don't know uh, why that was allowed to happen. It should, never should have been allowed to happen. Another point of contention I sought to clear up was how long Tammy's body had been left out next to the roadside in Missouri. Ask one of the many online sleuths, and they'll tell you she was likely dumped the night before she was found, that she'd been held captive somewhere. One of the more popular theories is that her body had been kept in a refrigerated truck for most of the time she was missing. My crime scene source actually carried Tammy's body, which was now in a body bag, from the roadside into the coroner's suburban. He says that the smell was so bad, the officers needed to apply Vicks Vapor Rub under their noses. The source also said that Tammy's body and head appeared to be swollen, that her face had a bluish-purple color, and that blood had pooled in the upper part of her body. The body was in a state of decomposition, which makes it difficult to, for example, identify, you know, um, decomp as, as opposed to bruising or abrasions um, that was, you know, very, some, some things that, that could provide us with, with some more information. But um, uh, so there was a number of things that were recovered from the crime scene that later on we were able to try to go through and analyze, it, you know, items such as the the blanket that her body was wrapped in, the clothing that she was found in, the there was duct tape that was used to secure the ends of the blanket that she was wrapped in. And so um, all of those items, those physical items were available to us. The origin of the blanket has been a source of misinformation that's been spread around the Internet for years. It's unclear even how the rumor started, but message boards and blogs claim Tammy was found wrapped in a red blanket made by Kenworth Trucking Company, something that was often used by truckers on the road. I have learned this is simply not true. In fact, I was told that law enforcement at the time 
looked into the Kenworth detail and discovered that the blanket was nothing more than a common product sold at Kmart stores nationwide. Still, the handling of Tammy's body, in particular, the initial testing and autopsy reports would become a point of frustration for investigators like Jeff Padilla. I know that the Missouri State Police were there for the autopsy. In my opinion, the autopsy was less than uh, I would have expected in regards to detail and analysis. But unfortunately, at the time, you had an autopsy conducted in a jurisdiction that that's all they had. And the elected coroner was also the local funeral director. And so he's not seeing the volume of suspicious deaths that say somebody in a, in a more urban area, a, a medical examiner or a coroner in a, in a more ur- urban area is seeing. I would have loved to have a lot more photos taken, a lot more testing done. Once, once you're done with the autopsy, if you, don't, if you didn't take enough photographs, then there's no coming back from that. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While investigators were just starting to piece together what happened, the Zawicki family was reeling the worst possible outcome was now their reality. Any hope of Tammy returning home safe and alive was now shattered. Hank and Joanne Zawicki's little girl was gone, murdered. It's unfathomable. You guys had like a memorial service for her at the college. Tell me about that. How was that? It was very nice. They had more students than they could handle that wanted to speak. Um, because she's, she was just an all-round purpose on, or person on campus because of her uh, working with the paper and everything she knew. From there, does law enforcement want to hold on to her body for a little bit to examine forensics? They did have it for a while, yeah. And then they finally released the body to you. And what do you, what do, you do? You have a, a service in Pennsylvania, a, a funeral service. Yeah. yeah, she had a lot of her college friends did come for the services. Tammy got along with everybody. She was very well liked, and it uh, it was hard on the the, the uh, not only the girls but the boys too. It was hard on all of them. And how are your sons coping with all of this? Well, they they did well with it. We didn't make more out of it than we should have. You know, it's happened. It's happened. Uh, Police are looking into what they're looking into. We're not going to make it a big thing and keep it over the family. It's something that's happened that we've got to get through. Darren is the only one that really, I think, still has been hard for him to let go of everything. A common complaint I heard from where the Zawickis were concerned was how little the Illinois State Police seemed to be doing. Or, I should say, how little they were telling the family what they were doing. In the ISP's defense, there's only so much you can tell the family of a victim during an active murder investigation. Early on, everyone is a suspect. That includes Tammy's brothers, her father, friends, and other family members. Still, the lack of communication with the Zwicky family caused a great deal of frustration and anger all of which, I think, could have been avoided. They were grieving and desperate to find out anything. But the state police were just not giving them 
any information. So did the Illinois State Police update you each day or? Well, I always made a point to try to be stay in touch with one person. As far as them updating me, no, they were doing, they were just, uh, I'll tell you what, what you need to know when you need to know it. it. It was not a very good relationship with the Illinois State Police, but I usually found someone that I could communicate with and uh, get information. So I did stay up on things. How does the investigation progress from here? As best that you could. I mean, it just was to look into everything and uh, publicity. A lot of a lot of people were critical of the publicity that was put out. They said, "Why did you put the you know publicity out?" And their picture appeared in some newspapers and things like that. And we said, "Because we want to try to get information." I mean, how do you get information? Well, doesn't it bother you? Yes, but I see her face whether I see it on a picture or whether I don't. You know, it's in your mind. It's in your mind. It's there. Here's Tammy's eldest brother, Todd. Early on, we were getting pretty regular updates, and those kind of tailed off over time as people retired, as FBI agents changed over time, as Illinois State Police people changed over time. In the beginning, did they mention anything about the type of DNA they had, what they found, forensics? Yeah, early on, the only thing they had for a long time that I was aware of was they said they had found the beer can near her and that the the beer can had something on it. They had no idea whether the beer can was just there coincidentally or was somehow related or whatever the case uh, would be. You know, they kept all the physical evidence, but back then my understanding was that to the extent that there were any traces of DNA on anything like the blanket or clothes or anything like that, the technology was such that they just couldn't, it wasn't usable, right? There wasn't enough of it. Um, and so my understanding had always been that they had this beer can and that maybe they could do something with DNA off of the beer can, but that that was all they had in terms of physical evidence to go on. After Tammy's body was found so far away, alongside a popular trucking route in Missouri, the ISP and FBI's focus narrowed even more. A truck driver became their most likely suspect, and much of their investigative attention now shifted to reflect that. As former ISP investigator Marty McCarthy told me in the last episode, that one tip from a woman who saw a man with a blue or green pickup truck parked behind Tammy's car just didn't get the attention it deserved. But it could have. Now, whoever assigned this to this agent, he, the, the supervisor recognizes from the get-go, hey, look at this. He says, look at it. When looking back at the ISP's tip sheet that I obtained, it's hard to miss a hand-drawn star and the word possible written beside the tipster's name. This tells me that someone on the task force saw the value and following up. Marty's theory is that that never happened. So what happened was, there was no follow-up on this. He blows it off. And when they, when we have a timeline to help the investigators... He doesn't even put it on... He doesn't on. even put it on there. 
What's even more significant about this eyewitness who saw the man with the pickup truck is that she calls the ISP tip line a second time. Now she says that she had just had an encounter at her place of work with the same guy. As it turns out, the guy was not only in the area where Tammy disappeared in Illinois, but his family owned property in Missouri, only 14 miles from where Tammy's body was found. So um, we go back, we look him up, two-time felon, he was a trucker, violent felon, got a green pickup truck, lives a few miles from the scene. It's like bingo. On the next episode of Paper Ghosts. Obviously, over time, we've had some people who look like plausible suspects. I didn't know uh, why there was so much focus put on that truck. There was also claims that there was a pickup truck. This always bugged me, but I'm told no one in certain terms to stay out of this case. To me, it was kind of almost a game to the fact that I'll just see whether or not this person get in my truck or not. I'd wait till further down the road whether or not I even wanted to do anything to him or not. If you are enjoying Paper Ghosts, please listen to my other podcast, Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps, where I use the same storytelling elements you've heard in Paper Ghosts and cover missing person and murder cases. Paper Ghosts is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Additional writing by our supervising producer, Julia Weaver. Our associate producer is Darby Masters. Audio editing and mixing by Christian Bowman and Abu Zafar. Our series theme, number 442, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts